Hey everybody, a quick message. Today's episode is brought to you by Book of the Month, a monthly book subscription box that helps readers discover new books from up-and-coming authors. The process of choosing your book is so easy and fun. Besides the website and app being really easy to navigate, the smaller but varied monthly selection, which always includes an anticipated new release, by the way, means I'm not overwhelmed with too many choices and it's truly easy to make a decision. And let's be real, we're all about simplicity right now, aren't we? Oh, Mm -hmm. definitely. (laughs) So you guys, I was thrilled when I saw that this month's selections included a book I have been anticipating for over a year. I chose The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren. It is rom-com at its finest. Think Pretty Woman meets Succession. I chose Spitting Gold by Carmela Locus about two shady spirit mediums in 19th century Paris. I mean, come on. You had me at shady spirit mediums, right? (laughs) This is a brand new hardcover book, and I'm getting it for less than I could get it anywhere else. And great news, you can get your first book for only $5 using the code PEDALS when you order at bookofthemonth.com. That's P-E-T-A-L-S. You guys, we love Book of the Month, and we know you will too. Hey, everybody. Let's pause here for station identification. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Hormone Harmony, a name that has so much more meaning to us now at the perfectly ripe ages of 55, 56, and 58. Longtime listeners know that the three of us are no strangers to hot flashes, night sweats, sleeplessness, and the occasional menopause moment, known more scientifically as menopause-related brain fog. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens that help the body adapt to stressors, including the chaotic hormonal shifts that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. Hormone Harmony has over 17,000 reviews online, and what you'll see them say over and over again is that they finally feel like themselves again. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code PCPS at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use PCPS for 15% off today. Thanks so much to Hormone Harmony and thanks to you for listening today. And I never once got, and if you're evil, I'll forgive you by and by. Never. I wonder what I used to say. It went by too fast. And if you're evil, I'll forgive you by and by. Bye, bye, bye. Hello, world, there's a song that we're singing. Come on, get happy. A whole lot of loving is what we'll be bringing. We'll make you happy. Welcome to the Pop Culture Preservation Society, the podcast for people born in the big wheel generation who remember what it was like to stand in line to sharpen your pencil, or even to use a pencil, I guess. Mm-hmm. We believe our Gen X childhoods gave us unforgettable songs, stories, characters, and images. And if we don't talk about them, they'll disappear, like Marshall, Will, and Holly on a routine expedition. And today, we'll continue our discussion of the movie that showed the world that Minneapolis was a long way from Walnut Grove, the iconic 80s music extravaganza, Purple Rain. I'm Carolyn. I'm Kristen. And I'm Michelle. And we are your pop culture preservationists. Hello world, there's a song that we're singing. Come on, get happy. Before we begin, we'd like to share that this episode includes in-depth discussions of domestic violence and some references to suicide. Thanks for your time and your compassion. 
and please enjoy today's episode. Welcome back to part two of our discussion about our discussion that immediately followed our viewing of the movie that defined the 80s for so many of us, Prince's Purple Rain. Last week, we asked Carolyn and Michelle how they managed to miss this movie when it came out in 1984, and the complete answer surprised all of us. Yes, even them. You'll have to listen to that episode to find out what that was. We also shared some stories that came from you, the listeners, the people who went to Purple Rain for their first dates, the podcast host whose 12-year-old brother rented a VCR and the movie and set it up in her bedroom for her 16th birthday. And then there was this. Purple Shane! Purple Shane! Yes, that was us singing Purple Shane, the nickname given to our friend Shane, who saw the movie so many times he earned the nickname Purple Shane. (laughs) But today, we will discuss the story of Purple Rain, because honestly, I couldn't even remember the story. The performances were burned into my brain, but if you had asked what the movie was about, I'm not sure I could have told you. And what we discovered is that when we discussed the story and the performances together, a much deeper understanding of Prince and the story he was trying to tell revealed itself. And we will let you listen in on parts of that conversation we had in Kristen's attic just minutes after finishing that movie. At first, I thought seeing this movie with 53-year-old eyes was a bad idea. There are some very painful and disturbing things that I don't think a lot of people caught with their 16-year-old eyes in 1984. But like all good book clubs reveal, it's possible that the pain and the disturbing content might be the point. And it's only now as adults that we can bring it out into the light and benefit from the messages. Amen. I think you're right about that. Mm -hmm. So like we mentioned last week, Purple Rain opens with the monologue to Let's Go Crazy. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called life. The performance is cut with quick edits of the people, places, and things that will make up this movie. The purpose of Let's Go Crazy is to tell us everything we need to know about what's going to happen in the next 90 minutes. It shows us who the players are, what the setting is, and that the theme of this movie is going to be figuring out how to get through this thing called life. Even that gives me goosebumps, just you saying it like that. I know. I swear. So we see that our setting is First Avenue, the iconic music venue in downtown Minneapolis where Prince, a.k.a. the kid, is playing with his band, The Revolution. Um, We see the streets of Minneapolis outside the club. And you guys, that was super fun for me to see now that I've lived here for like, I don't know, 20 million years. It made Mm -hmm. me get why everyone in Minneapolis must have gone crazy. Yeah. (laughs) Mm-hmm. But <laughs> but but for real, like I could see how exciting that would have been as a 16-year-old going, okay, and then there's the corner, and then I know where he yeah. is right now, and there's the yeah. street. Um, I've been there. I know that. And mm-hmm. all of that is gone now, much except for First Avenue. First mm-hmm. Avenue still stands oh, stalwart, well, sure. but it, everything that was across the street from First Avenue was demolished, and now there's a big concert venue, that, mm-hmm. a big stadium across the street. Yeah. And we meet all of our players like Morris Day and Jerome Benson, members of Prince's rival band, The Time, watching skeptically from the sidelines as the revolution plays. Right. And then we see a cab pull up in front of the club. The door opens and we meet Apollonia. She's arriving in Minneapolis to ask the owner of First Avenue for a job as a performer. She's dressed in this kind of black cape thing. And Mm, I loved it. I know, wasn't mm-hmm. that cool? And mm-hmm. she had the iconic, beautiful, total 80s big hair. I mean, she had such beautiful hair, such great hair. 
flawless skin. I had those boots. Mm-hmm. You did. I ran out and I, I had those boots. My mom bought them for me at Berman Buckskin, and they were two <laughs> sizes too small. And I did not care. They were so painful, you guys. I would just be like hobbling around, and my mom would say, "You should just get shoes that are your size." But they didn't have them in my hmm. size. Yeah, and then and no. it was worth it. Yeah. It was worth it. So it's also during Let's Go Crazy when we meet what should be considered one of the characters of the film, and that is the audience at First Avenue. Mm. Oh, yeah. We talked about that uh, a lot last week, for Mm -hmm. those of you who listened to part one. But just that they were so stereotypical 80s teenagers in just the best way possible. Yeah. Amplified with the colors of the 80s. If you think about like fuchsia and turquoise, everything was sparkly. They had makeup that was like the blush would be like a, a red oh, line that yeah. was on your cheek. You mm-hmm. Even the men would have these sparkly stripes that were painted on their foreheads. And even during the song, you would see lots of um, footage of people putting on makeup. Even yes. the men putting on makeup. People in the band putting on makeup when they're getting ready to go out on stage. Uh-huh. Makeup was big. Oh, huge. <laughs> hey, the boys in Duran Duran wore it. That's true. Uh, <laughs> yeah. In fact, if you think about it, all of the people that are being cut during um, Let's Go Crazy, all the people in the audience that they're showing look like the cover of Duran Duran's, which album is it? The famous the famous artist, Michelle. Oh, like Rio. Uh, like the, Na- yes. the Patrick Nagel. Uh, yes. yes. That's exactly Portrait what up, yeah. it is. Mm-hmm. All of the people in the audience look like the cover of that album. Yeah. It's yeah. totally that vibe and the, ge- mm-hmm. the geometric kind of feel to, to everything. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so then after Let's Go Crazy, which is one of my very favorite Prince songs, by the way, because, you know, I'm nothing if not original. Uh, <laughs> after all that joy and just the bebop and the dancing, we get to see the strife that's building backstage at First Avenue. The revolution is in disarray. Band members and fan faves, Wendy and Lisa, are clearly frustrated with the kid because he won't give their music any time on stage, only his own. What a brat. Morris Day and the Time walk by their dressing room and they mock them with the sing-songy, taunty version of Let's Go Crazy, which is really mean, but Let's we kind of love it. I know, but we kind of love Let's it because they're, they're, fab- they're fabulous and funny and they're we so still funny. love them. Mm-hmm. Um, but... It's a really melancholic moment because the kid seems very alone. Yeah, he really does. He really does. And then um, he gets home, and we can see why he might feel so alone. He lives at home with his parents, who are not okay at all. He often walks in on violent altercations between the two of them. He tries to protect his mother, but is often struck by his father when he does. And I remember in this scene the achy feeling I felt for Prince Mm -hmm. when he walked in on that beating. It's like instead of this adult prince, I saw a little boy. Yes. This was no doubt not the first time he had witnessed this violence. And just my heart broke for that little boy who had just grown up watching his father beat his mother. And he does. He like runs into the room and he throws his body at his father to try and stop him. And his father just flings him away, just like Mm -hmm. a gnat. It's just, you're right. He seems so small, like a little boy. He really does. And you Mm -hmm. know that that wasn't the first time that he's done that, that he's, you know, thrown his body at this man who is, yeah, beating Mm -hmm. up his mother. It's such a good illustration of you just never know what people are going through. He's very confident on stage and he's very showy and he's having a great time. And then you see what's happening at home. And it is true. It's just like, you know, they always say, you don't judge people. You never know what what their story is. 
there's such a contrast there. The bravado from First mm-hmm. Avenue contrasted with this um, difficulty at home. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. So a bright spot, though, might be the spark he gets from Apollonia, uh, because she shows up at First Avenue and is instantly besotted with the kid, like instantly. It's like he has this cosmic pull on her. And so, as is very typical of 80s movies, we get a musical Mm -hmm. montage to speed up their relationship. So this is the song, Take Me With You. Love that song, too. Uh, and it's a great choice. Again, like I, I've already said, I mean, these songs were not placed randomly. Uh, so this is the song, Take Me With You. And it's one of the only songs that isn't a performance. Instead, it's the classic MTV style music video on a motorcycle, of course, because it's <laughs> Prince. And this establishes that Prince and Apollonia are becoming romantically linked. moment, right? Totally. (laughs) He (laughs) takes her for a motorcycle ride in the country and they're driving and the wind is in her hair and she's holding around his waist. Now understand they've just met, but she's got her (laughs) arms around his waist. And this is where we have the famous moment where Prince agrees to help Apollonia with her career. If, I mean, their relationship, this, this is all um, progressing very quickly, but that's what the song is for. Right. Right, right, right. And he'll help her with the career if she first purifies herself in the waters of Lake Minnetonka, which non-Minnesotans, that is actually not Lake Minnetonka, but we're going to have a a fun fact, a little story on that It's not even a lake, people. No, it's it's like a pond. It's like a little, yeah, that is not Lake Minnetonka. But anyway, for the intents and purposes of this movie, let's believe that it is Lake Minnetonka. She has to purify herself in the waters of Lake Minnetonka. So of course, I mean, naturally... She must strip and show us all her boobs because, of course, she isn't wearing a bra. And you guys, her boobs are beautiful. Let me just say it. I mean, (laughs) but it's a totally gratuitous movie moment, right? Mm -hmm. Well, my goodness, she can't jump in in this leather vest and... Didn't she have like a leather vest? And my memory, yeah, she's wearing like a leather, leather. vest. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, my goodness, that would shrink right up. Poor Apollonia. And so <laughs> she has to take everything off. When we were watching it, I was like, okay, but why isn't she wearing a bra? And then I was like, oh, oh Michelle, because there's so many reasons she wasn't wearing a bra. I mean, look at her boobs. They're perfect. She doesn't need to wear a bra. One. She doesn't need one. Two, right. this she's is 19. a movie. This is a gratuitous boob moment for this movie. Yeah. We need to have one of those. Um, so yeah, it was just kind of like now at age 53, I'm like, oh, please, I roll. So then of course she gets out of the water and she's, you know, dripping and freezing cold. But yes, then of course he tells her then that's not Lake Minnetonka. And ha, 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 ha. and here's really where the story begins, because we're getting our very first glimpse of the kids' mistreatment of women. We all thought this was hilarious at the time. Funny joke, funny joke. Um, but now we're understanding that this is the beginning of a different part of the story. This will be one of the primary criticisms of the movie, actually, that it's misogynistic. <laughs> yeah, I totally can see that because um, that scene culminates with that jackass of a move where he's on his motorcycle and he's telling her to get on and then she goes to get on and whoop, he moves it up a little bit God, and so much. and he does it again and again and again and so i sadly have 
been a vic- the victim of some behavior like that. And mm-hmm. so I, my heart ached for Apollonia because I know what that's like. Um, it's so demeaning and humiliating. And I just, I felt so sad for her for having to experience that. So, and in um, the movie, it's meant to be, I mean, she's taking it like silly. And I never thought it was fun. No, no. I've I always think hated she, no, that movie. It's that, that, move. that whole scene is, it's really, it's a form of abuse. I think. I mean, yes. it's just bullying mm-hmm. and emotional abuse. Yeah, this is this is how he treats women. This is how he thinks of women. He's trying to get power over women, much hmm, as his father has done. Mm-hmm. And I think as a 16-year-old, as much as I loved Apollonia, and I really, really did, I loved those boots, my whole style was based on her, really. I, I should add, I was not very successful at emulating her style. <laughs> I was just trying well, to because you were limping around and had blisters <laughs> yes, all true. over your feet. It wasn't sexy. Not sexy. But I also saw a contrast between Apollonia and Wendy and Lisa. Apollonia is being the person who, um, I don't know if I want to say succumbs. That might be that might be a, um, a lightning rod of a word. Who succumbs to the person who is abusive. That's how I saw Apollonia as one of those people who was really open to this relationship with somebody who would treat her badly. And Wendy and Lisa being like, fuck off, dude. Mm-hmm. They see his dismissal of them. He's very, like you said in um, earlier, Michelle, you called him bratty. He is very bratty with oh, them, and he dismisses them. They call it out. Mm-hmm. They tell him he's a dick. They tell him what his flaws are. And you can see that they are on the verge of calling it quits with him. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, they're lesbians. They don't, they don't fuck around with stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> they don't need any of that drama. No. No, guess you might be honest on the I don't know. And this scene, the one with Take Me With You, was a real life abuse story, actually, because there is a really interesting factoid about that scene when she's jumping into the lake. Um, so they started filming the movie in November of 1983. November in Minnesota. Okay. Mm-hmm. Not warm. The temperature had plunged down into the 20s. And she has to take off all of her clothes and jump into a lake. And the nurses on the set were like, no, she cannot jump into this lake. She will die of shock. And the director says, well, you know what? The studio tells me we have to have this in the can today. So he just insisted. I mean, let's talk about abuse, Uh right? Like completely ignoring the well-being of your cast. Um, And then somehow he convinces her to jump in the lake. And when she does, she immediately goes into shock. It becomes a true medical emergency. I don't I don't want to say that she almost died. I've read places that she almost died, but I can't verify that she almost died. Needless to say, they could not finish the scene. So what they did was after the movie was had gone on too long, it was over budget, they're back in Los Angeles, they did manage to get a little bit of money to finish that scene in Los Angeles. And so you see Apollonia jumping into a lake in Minnesota. And when she's coming out of the lake, she's coming out of a lake in Los Angeles. And it was just such a stupid scene to me. Like, I guess I get what it was supposed to accomplish in terms of their relationship. I just think it could have been done in other ways, especially when they realized after the first take, like, oh, I don't think we can do this. But then we can, Mm -hmm. the writers, you know, the the guy who wrote Roots, I'm sure was like, oh, I can, I can rewrite that scene. No problem. Let's do a different type of purification. No, but we have to see her boobs. So we're going to have to, she's going to have to undress somehow. I just think that I I really do believe um, it was to see your boobs. uh, For sure. I I totally agree with you. And I also think that because there's this Lake Minnetonka part of it, which is a very prominent 
large, well-known lake in the Twin Cities area. I feel like that was somebody's vision. Like, what is this a joke that Prince has pulled on other people? Has he pulled this stunt on people in real life? Um, because Paisley Park would be very near Lake Minnetonka. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's true. I want to say something else about that scene. Um, how on earth did she get that leather out, those leather paint, everything back on after back she was on? wet? Right. Can you, Not I, possible. No, you, it's no, impossible. Exactly. Mm. Impossible. As much as I would have been game no. to jump in a lake for some dude who's pushing me to do something stupid, I would have said no based solely on the fact that how am I going to get these leather pants back on when I'm all wet? <laughs> There's no towel. That's right. There's no towel. I mean, have you ever been like dancing at a wedding or a club and then gone to the bathroom and tried to pull your space up and you're all sweaty? It's like impossible. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's so relatable. Well, in the meantime, Morris Day and Jerome start pursuing Apollonia as well. The owner of First Avenue has actually hinted to Morris that um, he wants to get rid of of the revolution. And Morris suggests that they replace the revolution with a girl group and he wants apollonia to be the lead singer so for apollonia that would mean not only rejecting the kid's help with her career but also replacing him on stage and morris day is no better with his treatment of women so the only way that he can relate to her or persuade her to be in his group is by seducing her with some champagne and a little sexy talk. And that plays out in a scene at First Avenue. She's wearing this outfit that kind of makes her look like she's actually shackled to Morris Day. There are chains involved and... Like cuffs on her wrist, aren't there? And around her neck, I feel like. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Almost like like dominatrix sort of stuff. Right, Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. Although the opposite would be true because it seems like she's shackled to by Morris Day as if she belongs to him in some way. Right. Which, again, is another um, way in that movie that they kind of told you part of the story without having to tell you part of the story. It's you you kind of get that that's that's what's going on there. So they're sitting at a table in full view of the kid. Um, and he's performing on stage, and you can see that demon begin to rise again. It's He's being overshadowed and losing to a rival. And we and don't it, actually think, the audience, we don't actually think that she's falling for Morris Day, but it certainly looks like it from the stage, where the kid stares her down and launches into the song, The Beautiful Ones. It's a searing musical plea that culminates in him screaming, Do you want him or do you want me? Because I want you. Which left me uh, crying actual tears, trying not to sob because I felt it so purely. I felt his screaming plea so purely. And I cried this time too in the attic. I tried to hide it, but I couldn't. I'm like sitting on the couch. I'm like shaking. I'm shaking because that also is very personal for me, too, because I was in a situation at the time where I was I, I, I don't even like to say it because it's embarrassing. But I was dating two people at the same time. And you shared it. And there was some yeah, episode. Go back. There's some. Episode. I did. Just, you know what, everyone? Go listen to them all because we're not remembering. Own it. Yeah. Own it. It's OK. <laughs> Own it. It's it is embarrassing. Oh, mostly the only reason I was dating two people at the same time is because I was not very um practiced in how to break up with people. 
I didn't know how to do it. And so I didn't. <laughs> and I just <laughs> let it keep going until Prince looked me in the eye during that song in Purple Rain and said, do you want him or do you want me? Because I want you. And I was like, I'm sorry, Prince. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And it was like he was talking to me. It was absolutely like he was talking to me. The teenager in me comes right to the surface, and I feel all of the pain of being rejected or of rejecting. That is also painful, and that's what I was dealing with, having to reject someone. This is one of the primal experiences of high school, if you think about it. We're in the business of falling in love in high school, whether it's in real life or from afar. It doesn't really matter. And then being rejected or having to reject someone else. This is the education of high school. And in our book club discussion, right after we watched the movie, I shared a story about Lizzo and her unforgettable once-in-a-lifetime performance of The Beautiful Ones. Because what a lot of people don't know is that Lizzo moved to Minneapolis because of Prince. Her music career started here in Prince's orbit. Listen to this. So on the day that he died, Lizzo flew back to Minneapolis to join the crowd of 10,000 people that had spontaneously gathered on the streets in front of First Avenue. And she wanted to come back and be a part of the celebration. And the people on the stage kept promising Lizzo is coming, Lizzo is coming, Lizzo is coming. And they didn't have any more performers left. Everybody had done their Prince tribute, and we're all standing there, all 10,000 of us. And they're like, Lizzo's coming, Lizzo's coming. And they would give us updates. She's on the tarmac. She's waiting for an Uber. She's in the Uber. She's coming. By the time Lizzo got there, she couldn't get to the stage. The crowd was so big and was so dense, she couldn't get to the stage. And so they made an announcement. They said, Lizzo's back there. She can't get to the stage. And you guys, it was like the parting of the Red Sea. And the people opened up, and Lizzo came running up to the stage. I mean, it was like a city block. She had to go like a city block. She gets up on the stage. She sings the beautiful ones. And I'm, I'm crying about it now, just thinking about it. She slayed that song. She destroyed me. She destroyed me. And it was so worth waiting there in that crowd for Lizzo to arrive. She's really crying, everyone. I know. She is. Yeah. <laughs> Her tribute, you guys, was so real. It was so heartfelt. It was so full of despair. She mirrored exactly what we were feeling in the crowd. And Carolyn actually found a YouTube clip of this performance. So here's Lizzo singing The Beautiful Ones on the day that Prince died. also include a link in our show notes to the actual clip on YouTube so you can see her performing and the crowd that sh- that's there. It's pretty amazing. The Beautiful Ones also crushes Apollonia. She cries during the performance and assures him that she wants him, not Morris. It was never Morris, but it's short-lived because when she shares with him that she's going to join Morris's girl group, the kid lashes out. He assaults Apollonia just like his father. Again, we see that demon rise in Prince, the jealousy and rage that takes over. And the only way he knows how to deal with those feelings is through violence, just like his father. 
And Apollonia obviously runs away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this leads to the all is lost moment. He's lost his girl. His spot at First Avenue is in jeopardy. Wendy and Lisa are on the verge of quitting the band because he won't listen to their music. And we have another musical montage. <laughs> what would it be without another musical montage? <laughs> but this is this montage is set to what would become a very historic song. There's no underestimating the impact the music video to Win Doves Cry would have on the success of this movie. It's That's iconic. It's it iconic. is iconic. Yeah. Yeah. It was there's the so first much imagery song. with that too. Yeah. There's a lot of imagery. He's on his motorcycle. He's going through the he's riding through the country, and you can just feel that there's mm-hmm. there's this turmoil going on. And it's the song was released, I think you looked this up during our discussion, Carolyn, was released a month before the movie. So this was our first song before the movie was released. It's it's sort of leading us down this path of what is to come. Well and again it's a it's a really good example of the song and the lyrics most especially driving mm-hmm. this story forward. Yeah, because it's really one of the lowest moments of the film. Mm-hmm. And if all of what you describe happens, Michelle, the uh, he lost his girl, he is going to lose his band, oh, it's, he's going to lose his job. Yeah. If all of that happens, he will be his father, mm-hmm. a failed musician who plays only at home and takes his frustration out on his wife. So the lyrics of When Doves Cry, which we didn't really understand when we were singing it, I guess speaking for myself, um, it's about the cycle of domestic violence. And the video shows him literally trying to decide which road to go down. He has to choose a path. So now when you hear these lyrics, it means so much more. Mm-hmm. How can you just leave me standing alone in a world that's so cold? Maybe I'm just too, too demanding. Maybe I'm just like my father, too bold. Maybe you're just like my mother. She's never satisfied. Why do we scream at each other? This is what it sounds like when doves cry. And that's when Carolyn asked, is he the dove? And you just blew my mind. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, I could just feel that emotion in that song and those lyrics. I'm thinking that's exactly who he is. And it's that little boy again. It's that Mm -hmm. little boy just crying and and just just crying. (laughs) The lyrics are just... (laughs) Okay, I'll pick you up here. I'll pick you up. The lyrics are so beautiful, though. Like, as a 16-year-old, I loved singing along to this song because this is a great sing-along because let's remember, if you listen to episode one of this Purple Rain discussion, I didn't see the movie then in 1984. Mm -hmm. Carolyn or I, we didn't see the movie. So I'm just singing along to this song. These lyrics don't mean anything to me, really, because I'm not being able to place them in the context of the movie. Now... Since I've seen this movie, this song just just gets me in the gut. It's now it it's gets you. beautiful right. and tragic and sad and I mean, what a songwriter. When doves cry, he's the dove, he's crying. He it's mm-hmm. just it means so much more now. 
So when Doves Cry was something that we hadn't actually heard before, this style of song, we're like, what is this? One of the reasons that it was so unusual is because there wasn't a bass line. And Warner Brothers, the music studio, was like, when are you going to finish that song, dude? And Prince was like, it is finished. And they're like, no, it's not. It's not done. This doesn't sound like a song. There's no bass line. And he kept insisting it's done. And they said, you can't release a song with no bass line. He's like, I just did. And guess what? It's a huge hit. We couldn't actually perceive that there was no baseline. We didn't know why mm-hmm. it was different. No. We were just kind of drawn to it like moths to a flame. Right. And I'm embarrassed to say I don't think I know now if when I listen to it that it doesn't oh, I have wouldn't. a baseline. That's okay, Carolyn, because I wouldn't either. Unless somebody told me. Once right. somebody told me, then I can be like, oh, God, there's, you're right. There's no bass. But I couldn't pick that out by myself. Okay, so now in the movie, the kid returns from his come-to-Jesus motorcycle ride, and he finds his mother on the front steps of their house. She's bruised and beaten, and he enters his home to confront his father. The kid finds him in the basement, smoking a cigarette and playing the piano. It's a haunting, melancholy melody that he's playing, and when he asks his son if he has a girlfriend, the kid says yes, and his father says, don't ever get married. Now, I want to say, unlike the first time in the movie when the kid walks in on his father beating his mother, and I said that I saw him kind of as a child in that scene, Mm -hmm. but this scene, I kind of see a little bit of a twist. I see the kid more as an adult. Like, he has this realization in that moment, something that maybe it doesn't have to be the same way for him that it was for his father. Maybe he can even redeem his father's tortured soul by being the musician that his father could never be. Oh, my God. You know, I like to look at the glass half full sometimes, everybody. Mm -hmm. Well, things are very nuanced. Never Things are not black and white. They just aren't. And I think think you could be onto something, Carolyn, right? He's got to find. We all know that our fathers are important in our lives, whether they were good people or bad people. We want their approval no matter what. And I think Mm -hmm. he's in that same Mm -hmm. position. That is just the reality of the way families work and the way people develop. Ooh, and God, this is creepy. just another good reason why uh, you all listening should, if you liked this movie in 1984, it's it's worth a rewatch because this is yet something else that had I seen this movie at age 15 and he walks in and the dad says, don't ever get married. I would have been like, oh yeah, cause you know, you obviously don't like your wife, so you don't want to be married. There's so much more to it than that, that we see yeah. now as adults. And what happens next is connected to that moment in a way that I, that went way over my head when I was 16. But when you know it, when you know what this is, the small detail that I will reveal, the heaviness you feel is almost too much to bear. The next scene is his next gig at First Avenue, and the song he opens with is Computer Blue, which is a sleeper hit on the album that doesn't get the attention that it deserves. It's a really good song. He's lashing out in this song. It's like he's rebelling against someone. Is it his father? Is it his band? Is it the owner of First Avenue? I don't know. He's clearly really, really angry because during this song, Wendy gets on her knees in front of Prince, presumably at his instruction, in this sort of pseudo-fellatio type improvisation. Mm -hmm. It's super uncomfortable and the audience doesn't like it. The owner of First Avenue is shaking his head and you have to wonder, is he trying to get fired? Like before 
Billy can fire him? Is he trying to say, fuck you, Billy, you can't fire me, I'm leaving? Maybe. I think it's more like, you know how sometimes you want to be shocking just to be shocking? I think he's got so many, like I said in, in the first part of this last week, I, that when I was watching it, I kept saying, he has so many feelings. He has so many feelings, yeah. especially he's come off of this, you know, come to Jesus motorcycle, right? He's seen what, you come home, seen his mother beat up again. There's so much bubbling and brewing. I feel like he just almost is, I'm just going to like act out and be shocking to be shocking. I saw it as Prince not saying like, oh, just try to fire me, but just like, yeah, I'm going to just show you all, you know, I'm going to be shocking and I'm going right. to just push, I'm going to push the envelope yeah. and I'm going to just keep pushing it because I don't know how to control all these feelings. So I'm just going to let mm-hmm. them all just go crazy, basically. All the teachers in the audience right now are going, yes, Michelle, mm-hmm. yes, because you do, you see this in classrooms all the time, mm-hmm. the kid that just keeps acting out. And here's the little nugget that, I, that I'm going to reveal that it, that is connected to this scene. This is the heartbreaking part. When he gets to the bridge of the song. It's very noticeable because the song changes considerably. If you listen carefully, the bridge of Computer Blue is the song that his dad was playing on the piano when Prince went to confront him about his mom's most recent beating. you guys notice that? I remember I thinking that at the time and I wasn't a hundred percent sure, but for me, it makes total sense now. Mm-hmm. To me, that's how Prince could maybe understand his father a little more, mm-hmm. even like through his father's music. Could this scene be like some kind of therapy for the kid? Yeah. Uh-huh. And it's a really beautiful melody. It's really quite mm-hmm. haunting. I think you can count on one hand how many people picked up on that. I... I think I only picked up on it as a 54-year-old. I sure. I for sure didn't pick up on it at 16. Connecting this little thing that his dad was playing on the piano and then the bridge of this next song that's coming. It's quite haunting. And to add to that heartbreak, that bridge was written in real life by Prince's actual father. The songwriting credits say Prince Rogers Nelson and John L. Nelson. Whoa. Uh, and we are... Oh are we... We talked last week about if this was autobiographical or not. Right. Do we know what the relationship with him between him and his father was actually like? So this is all of this is a little bit hazy. Um, there's not tons that is revealed. And I feel like there are two stories that happened. On the one hand, I feel like they were quasi estranged. Um, and on the other hand, it appears that when his father died, which was about 20 years ago, they said he died in Chanhassen, which is where the town where mm-hmm. Paisley Park is. Does that mean his father was living with him at Paisley Park? I mean, at the very least, it means that Prince purchased a home for his father in Chanhassen to be near him. There's no reason, just to, to put it out, there's no reason for people to move from North Minneapolis to Chanhassen <laughs> unless you're Prince, right? There's just no reason. And so you want a yard? I think... Yeah. Well, there are lots of, there are lots of suburbs with yards. Why Chanhassen? I get a feeling too, and maybe again, this is the glass half full, but um, 
in real life, having that the musical credit with Prince Rogers Nelson and John L. Nelson, has did his father ever have his name on any other piece of music that was written? Like I think back to the scene in the movie where mm-hmm. um, Prince opens up, I think it's a chest or a box, and all of that music pours out, which yeah. you know is music that his father mm-hmm. wrote. Mm-hmm. And you think it's probably never seen the light of day. It's probably been played in that basement <sighs> mm-hmm. the whole time. So could this not be similar to what Prince's dad experienced? Yeah. And could this not be Prince's gift to his father? Like, you have a song credit. Like it's You're a rolling. legitimate composer. Right. Yeah. Is this maybe not forgiveness of some sort? Same yeah. with purchasing the home near me. Yeah. Is this not a way for even Prince to find peace within so he yeah. doesn't have to be the crying dove anymore? Ele- elevating um. his father, supporting his father. I know he has several co-writing credits on Prince songs. I oh, don't okay. know if he has co-write if he has writing credits Any? for other songs. I don't know. I have no idea. And what better way to say, look, Dad, I'm a success and yes. you can kind of ride my coattails. Because listen, like you said before, Kristen, the relationship between a father and a son is so foundational. It mm-hmm. truly, I think, dictates the way a man will walk through this world. They want yes. their father's approval more than anything. Um, I think we see that play out with Maybe Donald Trump. And yep. I don't know if you watch mm-hmm. Succession, but Logan Absolutely. Roy is this awful mm-hmm. father who shows no emotion, just abusive to his children. And all you can see is Kendall and Roman, the two sons, the whole show, just trying. That's all they're doing. Mm-hmm. They just all their want actions. the attention from their father. They exactly, just want exactly. a relationship with their father. That's what right. they want. And I don't Whether think a good person or a bad person. Right. Yeah. I don't it think matter. it matters how evil or terrible the father is. Yes. I almost think it's wired into the male species. I agree. I totally agree with you. Mm-hmm. So when Computer Blue is over, Morris Day walks into First Avenue with Apollonia. And when Prince sees them together, like I said before, that kind of pushing the envelope, um, the thrashing out he was doing on stage, it amplifies and it really just turns into this lash out at what he's seeing. He launches into Darling Nikki. I guess you could say she was a sex fiend I met her in a hotel lobby Masturbating with a magazine she said, A song like that, you guys, was so shocking to us in 1984 <laughs> because she was a sex fiend masturbating with a magazine. She grinds. Mm-hmm. She has devices. God damn, that's a great song. Oh, don't say that down. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'll be Dang. like, damn. Yeah. <laughs> Damn, that is a great song. And so we fun to sing along that to. song. Man, I'm I love that sure song. I had never heard the word masturbate out loud before, darling Nikki. And we were just tickled. Oh, excuse the pun. Um, well, and it's not just that part. I mean, we were looking up the lyrics to that song. And then <laughs> mm-hmm. we were go- opening our dictionaries. <laughs> right. <laughs> We couldn't just take to the Google. We were going yeah. to the card catalogs. <laughs> this is the song, by the way, that inspired Tipper Gore and a whole bunch of Washington, D.C. Karens to launch the PMRC, the Parents Music Resource Center. This was the organization that wanted the government to impose a rating system on music. And they had a whole bunch. I'm sure you remember this. They had a whole bunch of televised congressional hearings about it. Darling Nikki is the reason 
for the PMRC because Tipper Gore heard Darling Nikki coming out of her daughter's bedroom and she was like, what? What is happening? And she immediately called all of her friends. She's like, let's kick Prince's ass. And then John Denver and Dee Snyder from Twisted Sister showed up to testify <laughs> and shamed them all by explaining the subjective nature of art. Because basically, if you don't like Darling Nikki, you don't have to listen to Darling Nikki, right? but you should definitely yes. listen to Darling Nikki before deciding that you don't like Darling Nikki. It's with it, That's the lesson with everything. That's yes. right. That if you don't like drop. something, you don't yes. have to watch it, do it, listen to it, whatever. But you shouldn't tell yeah. other people that they cannot. The end. That's right. And like you said um, just now, Kristen, but maybe you need to listen to this thing before you make the decision that you're not going to listen to it. You know, like, don't just make this blanket statement based on the title or, you mm-hmm. know, a picture a that word, goes with it. The or single the word video. masturbate. I mean, it's right. really based on the word masturbate. Right. And and maybe consume it in its context. So that right. just like what we're talking about, you, we're going to talk a lot about Darling Nikki and what happened in that context. And then when Tipper Gore understands that, she's like, dang, that's a powerful song. Daughter, would you like to talk about the power mm. of this moment? And you yeah. can still say she can't listen to it. I'm going to guess Tipper Gore didn't, would not <laughs> no. say that. Oh, no. <laughs> that's a very 2022 thing to do. So let's talk about the song in the movie. Okay. It is actually a dig at Apollonia. Essentially, when the kid is singing it, he's slut-shaming her. Mm-hmm. And it's that age-old trope, you guys, that when a guy feels rejected by a woman, he's just going to accuse her of being mm-hmm. slutty. Yeah. Really, it's a moment of cruelty. He's basically accusing Apollonia of whoring herself out, whether metaphorically or literally, to Morris Day, you know, signing on the dotted line to get whatever she wants, which is to be famous, and she knows that. And with the song and him thrashing so painfully and almost out of control, she can't take it. And she she starts to cry and she runs out of First Avenue. She knows it's about her. He, she knows mm-hmm. that he's accusing her. Mm-hmm. Of oh, yeah. So initially, as a 16-year-old, Apollonia's crying and running out. And I'm like, what? Why is she mad? What? What's happening? I did not fully comprehend how the performance was telling the story. This is kind of my theme for the whole episode. I didn't understand that he was being cruel to her in that moment. And part of that could be that I've been singing it wrong all of these years. I li- I just now looked up the lyrics on paper to Darling Nikki. I only knew it from listening to it. Michelle, you just said the correct words. But mm. I've been singing, thank you for a funky time. Call me up whenever you want to oh. cry. And then he oh. wails about crying, on and on about crying, like Nikki is his therapist or something. She's not <laughs> talking about crying. The correct words are, mm-hmm. call me up whenever you want to grind, yeah. which is what you just said. Yeah. I'm just learning that now. <laughs> Right, and he's not, because he's not saying, call me up whenever you want to make love. Thank you for a funky time. Call me up whenever you want to grind. So, yes, this is clearly about slut-shaming, and I did not know that as a 16-year-old. Well, after she hears the song and runs out of the club, he runs off stage and he just starts trashing his dressing room. I mean, you kind of felt it was building up to this. Mm-hmm. I want to say... 
kid, you need to learn how to regulate your emotions. <laughs> That's what I'm learning in my therapy with my therapy. He is really having. Issues. Let's get your toolbox, um, the kid. Yes, that's right. Right. Get your toolbox out and let's see yep. what tools we can use to fix this. Well, mm-hmm. just think. I mean, his music is the place where he is unleashing this these emotions. That's right. So there was that disgusting pretend blow job during Computer Blue, um, the musical moment where he's actually putting his abusive father's melody out into the world, and the cruelty he just dumped on the woman he supposedly loves. And the owner of First Avenue stops in the doorway and says, is the kid trying to become his father? Is he thinking that there's no hope for him and that he's going to turn out just like his father? While not physical abuse, that performance and song was certainly emotional abuse, in my Mm -hmm. opinion. And that can be a lot worse sometimes. And Mm -hmm. when the owner of First Avenue says, I remember when we were sitting on the couch and the owner looks at him and says, like father, like son. And we all were like, oh, Yes, that exactly. was low. Yeah, that so was low. a low blow. Yeah. And so not surprisingly, here's where, I don't know if I'd say the most disturbing part of the movie, but certainly one of the most disturbing mm-hmm. parts of the movie comes in. The next night after Apollonia's performance with her new girl group, Apollonia 6. I'm a- like I need to pose when I say it. Right. Um, she finds herself alone in an alley with Morris Day, who he's all, you know, he's all strutting like a chicken. He's all proud of, you know, this new girl group he put together. And he's drunk. And because he doesn't know how to relate to her except sexually, he takes her drunkenness as, cons- as consent to have sex with her, which she does not want. And you think everything is going to be okay because the kid zooms in on his motorcycle with like the <laughs> fog and the kind of it's you know there's always that kind I'm of I'm sure mist. it's purple fog. Mm-hmm. Purple it's fog. actually raining, isn't yeah. it? Kind of it's that was oh, yeah, the scene yeah. though mm-hmm. where it's raining. No, it's raining sometimes. Like when he's driving oh, yeah. on the motorcycle, it's raining. But when we cut to Apollonia and Morris Day standing there, no rain. Not but when rain. Prince is coming around, rain, no rain, right? Yeah. That's what happens in Minneapolis, you guys, though. It actually does sometimes. It rains on one block and not another. But in this case, it was pretty funny. Anyway, um, I got to go back to my seriousness here. Uh, But but he zooms in on his motorcycle and he rescues her. So you think, yeah, everything's going to be okay. Although you're kind of remembering, well, they don't, they haven't left their relationship on a really good note. Uh, They they zoom away on the motorcycle, and then he, of course, not knowing what to do with all of these feelings. He then starts putting the moves on her, and he's the one that's kind of forcing himself upon her. And, of course, she, again, is saying, no, no, no. And, you know, he he wants – his emotions now are just bubbling up and brewing to the surface, and there are so many, and they're so dangerous. And he wants to hit her. He wants to do – he wants to be abusive and violent. Because she's rejected him. Yeah. Yeah, and she knows it, mm-hmm. and she flees. This is the part of the movie, like Michelle just did the soft sell on this because I think it's <laughs> difficult to talk about uh, to talk about it. This is the part of mo- of the movie where we really lose Michelle because it's really quite egregious what he does, and it's mm-hmm. scary. He's pulling his arm back with a fist, and he's going to hit her in the face, and she's cowering, she's cowering, and we're all like, "Oh no!" And Michelle's like, "I'm out." 
I'm out. Like the movie well, is over for Michelle. It, yes and no. I mean, yes, um, I just, um, and we're going to get to a good discussion of this in a minute where I definitely have been able to come around. But no, in the moment of me watching it, you're right. I yeah. check out. I, I check out. I'm like, you said earlier, you know, things aren't black and white in these types of relationships. And I totally agree with you. And I understand that. But all I'm seeing in this moment is black and white, black and white. And I'm a seeing fist coming at her face. I'm seeing, no, don't, I'm not going to have compassion for the kid. And I don't, yeah. I'm not. I'm going to have a really hard time liking him. I don't like him in this moment. Um, and, this and I haven't really, liked him really a lot up until then. I'll be quite honest with you. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. And it was also, it's scary and it's egregious, but it's also extremely nuanced. And Carolyn felt really strongly that this moment was pivotal, that something was changing. So she was seeing mm-hmm. it in a different way. She was seeing yeah. something else happening. Yeah, I totally could feel um, in this scene that he was trying to stop. I mean, we've got that scene, his arm is pulled back, like you guys were saying. And I just feel like in his head, it was, I'm at this crossroads. I can punch her and be just like my father's always been, or I can go a different way. It's that demon is trying to talk to him and say, this is the way to go. And he is fighting with all of his might to not go that way. Um, so I wanted our listeners to hear that part of our conversation in your attic, because really it was pretty important, mm-hmm. um, both as a commentary on the film, but also a commentary about abuse. So here we are in Kristen's attic discussing this really disturbing scene. Well, he had that moment with her where he could have kept, you know, she was on the ground and he could have, he, he stopped himself. Well, yeah, but he hit it once. No, I know, but but I feel like it was kind of a light bulb moment at that point that something happened at that moment. And then I think something happened when he's at the hospital bedside with his mom. And I think he was open to getting help. Well, you saw it on that moment you're talking about. You see it in his face where he wants badly to hit her and his face looks like he's in pain. Now that he's angry, like he's in pain. After he hit her the first time. Yeah, yeah, and, and if not back. Back. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, some people would have kept going. And I think they're, this is how I like, because, you know, I'm going to say the glasses, at least he had a moment of realization that there's maybe another, there's another choice. I don't have to keep doing this. Mm-hmm. And he didn't do it. And it looked really hard not to do it, mm-hmm. too. Um, and then, you know, we go from there. I'm not making... No, no, no. And I understand that. He had a he had a look like that the first time he hit her, too. He was re- he was a little bit remorseful when she went running out, you know, of the... Of yeah, but here, he, she was on the ground. He was on top oh, okay. of her. And he right. could have... I mean, she was... There was a little different. But. Well, and that's all on purpose, right? All of that is... All of that is the director or Prince or whomever is making this movie. They're making those artistic choices to show him struggling with what he's doing. <clears throat> that he knows the whole time. He's not like, I can hit women because my dad does. He knows that this is a dark, dark mm-hmm. path to go down, but he's fighting it within his soul. And he's it, got these demons that he's fighting, and when and he is remorseful every time he does it. I know that there's, there is a trope that goes along with, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again. Mm-hmm. And that is the story of domestic violence. That's why we have a cycle of domestic violence, right. because nobody is just mean and wants to hit people, there's a demon inside that they're really working hard to work against. And so the question is, is he strong enough or does he have the fuel to be able to overcome the cycle of violence that's been taught to him? And it's in that moment when she's when she's on the ground that he's struggling to grab the light. He's reaching for the light. Take me out of here. I don't want to be this person. How am I going to do this? 
the one of the biggest criticisms of the movie is the misogyny in the movie, including mm-hmm. that scene where Morris Day throws the woman in the dumpster. The studio's like, that can't that can't <laughs> stay. You have to take that yeah, out. Yeah, that was weird. And it tested really well with audiences, and so they left it in. Um, I know exactly. You got to say about that, right? Um, and one one critic said. Um, the film's anti-woman attitude undercuts some of the most viscerally moving rock concert footage ever presented in a motion picture. But we have to remember that this might be Prince's story. And so the director was actually trying to tell the story of somebody trying to get out of that story, mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. I think as a 16-year-old, I took it as instructive um, from the woman's point of view, especially the parts featuring Wendy and Lisa, because he was so dismissive of them. He's not abusive to them in the way he is to Apollonia but he is completely and utterly dismissive of them and their creativity but they fight back they get angry and that's where I took my instruction don't let people do that to you or more darkly men will do this to you Mm -hmm. is what I learned but you don't have to be quiet about it and you can threaten to leave yeah so essentially essentially in that moment Carolyn you're seeing him I can't even speak it out loud. I can't. <laughs> how do we how do we sum that up? How do we come back for that? Well, something that came to my popped in my head after I was listening to our discussion there was that here's where I see a difference. We kind of compared um him being remorseful after the first experience mm-hmm. and that that's a, an abuser's um tactic a lot is do the action and then say you're sorry. But what was different in this moment where he's on top of her is he is actually at that moment before he smacks or hits or whatever, he's thinking. So it's different than being sorry for it before. It's like, okay, I'm at this crossroads. I don't have to do this thing that I eventually could apologize for. So I think it's different in that way. That right. he it's actually, not remorse. Right. It's not yeah. after the fact, oh, I, I shouldn't know. have done that. Yeah. This is before the fact knowing I shouldn't do this. And I don't think abusers have that um, notion. Yeah. They just do the action and then they're sorry after. But if you watch it, I just what rewatched the, the scene where he uh, does it. And, you know, he's they're kissing. He's he's um, wanting it, you know, to go more. She stops him. He slaps her. She slaps him back. He stops for a minute. But then after he stops for a minute and looks at her, he takes both of his hands and he puts them straight on her face and he shoves her to the ground and she falls and hits her head on, you know, hits her head. And then he jumps on top of her. He takes his hand, he reaches it up and then he stops. So he does think, but after he thinks, he then takes her and he pushes Mm -hmm. her. And I don't know, I just felt like it was all just out of control. And I don't know that I necessarily saw any remorse. It was horrible. It's really horrible. And this is more for the people who saw it in 1984. Did we know how horrible it was in 1984? I don't think we did. Like, it was very difficult to watch sitting in my Mm -hmm. attic. I'm not sure we were disturbed by it, but did we fully understand what that represented? And I I don't think that we really did. So after that, Apollonia flees, naturally. We assume for good. And when the kid returns home, something is really wrong. The house is all dark. And you can see his father standing in the dark. He's sort of shrouded in dark. And he's holding a handgun. And when the kid flips the light switch, the (sighs) audience hears a gunshot. Yeah, Michelle's face just cringed. It's Uh -uh. shocking. And here's where the filmmaking really rises to the occasion. 
There is no dialogue. It's just ambient sounds of sirens, people shouting, the sounds of footsteps up and down the stairs, the sound of his mother crying, the sound of the paramedic scrambling to help his father on the floor, loading him on a stretcher while he writhes in pain. And then you see Prince sitting on the couch, his hands in his lap. He's surrounded by police who are asking him questions, and he looks so small and so vulnerable. His eyes are full of tears. His face is so bewildered, and you don't hear a single word, but it feels excruciating. That's where we get the citizen the Citizen Kane aspect of it, I think. You know, it's it's moments like these in the filmmaking yeah. where the critics are saying, these were some really good choices. Yeah, because it hurts to watch that. Mm -hmm. It really hurts. And after the police leave, there's still no dialogue. He starts having flashbacks of the gunshot, of his father's abuse, his father yelling. He covers his ears. He cries. And what you're seeing is trauma on film. Mm -hmm. You're seeing him having a panic attack, essentially. His eyes flash to a rope on the floor. And for a split second, just a hair of a second, there's a likeness of Prince hanging from the rafters. It's horrible. Mm. It's just horrible. And he picks up a golf club and he starts trashing the house violently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as he rages, he flips open the trunk. And this is the part that comes in that Carolyn talked about just a few minutes ago. He starts flinging the contents of the trunk around the room. And we can see that it's sheet music. It's hundreds and hundreds of pages of sheet music are flying around the room. And it takes him a moment to see what it is because at the top of each page, it says Francis L. And these are his father's compositions. And that moment makes it clear how prolific he was, how painful it must have been for his father to be that musical and have no outlet, no audience, um, have no appreciation for the art that you've created. Okay, so why Francis L? This is why Francis L. Prince's dad's name was John L. Nelson. So when we spoke earlier about these comparisons between the finding the sheet music and how that might have related to his dad, we can't underestimate that connection there. We can assume that it said John L., at the top of his father's compositions. And as the kid looks at the sheet music, we hear the melody of the notes that he's reading on the pages and a tear is coming down his face. It's, it's so hard. It is. And you wonder if in that moment he saw his dad differently, you know, and he imagines himself, what if I didn't Mm -hmm. have an outlet for this music in me and this art in me. Um, so I think that's a real pivotal moment in that relationship between yeah. the father and son. Um, so then Prince collects himself and he goes into his room uh, and then he sees the tape that Wendy and Lisa had given him and they wanted him to listen to. And he was like blew him off. Like he wasn't going to listen to it. Um, so now he pops it in, into the cassette player and we hear what is now a very familiar riff. It's the opening of the song Purple Rain. He rewinds it, plays it again, scribbles some notes, rewinds, plays again, scribbles more notes. He's going from that moment of recognizing his father's compositions, and he's going into his room to compose. Yeah, because he still has to perform. 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah because yeah. he still yeah, has to he's, he, I mean, the show must go on, right? And all that. Uh, right. So back we go to First Avenue and the revolution is waiting to go on stage. The time has just finished their set with The Bird and Jungle Love. Oh my God, you guys, side note. Those are such fun songs, right? And as Morris and Jerome pass the revolution backstage, Morris looks at the kid and says mockingly, how's the family? And it's just another shocking moment of cruelty. There's so much cruelty in this movie. Mm -hmm. There is. It makes you feel so sad for Prince and what he had to deal with. But a moment that doesn't go unnoticed because as the time rounds the corner, we see Morris Day stop and collect himself. Like there's this bit of remorse. It's a great example of nuance and direction in this movie that's really full of non-actors. But we got that um, emotion out of him just with that little scene. Yeah, he doesn't say, ah, dang, I wish I hadn't said that mean thing. He just waits for his band members to pass so that he can be alone. And then he sort of puts his face in his hands like, I can't believe I said that. That moment of cruelty by Morris Day also makes me wonder... What kind of cruelty did Prince endure in his life for that right. to make it into the movie? Exactly. Right. Why else is that there if not somebody being so cutting mm-hmm. to him? So after that moment of cruelty for Morris Day, the revolution takes the stage. It's very quiet. The crowd is silent. And you get the feeling that they know about his father and they're waiting to see what he'll do. They know that some sort of tragedy has befallen him. It feels very expectant. And the kid announces, he goes to the mic and he says that he'll be playing a song written by Wendy and Lisa, which he dedicates to his father. And Wendy and Lisa look at each other in disbelief. And that song, of course, is Purple Rain. I never meant to call you when you I never meant to call you when you So Purple Rain is really where we begin to see that the kid has chosen a path to overcome his demons. This is the choice he's making. He's signaling to the world and to Wendy and Lisa and to Apollonia that he's trying to break the cycle of violence and mistreatment. And he's going to do that by letting Wendy and Lisa shine instead of insisting that he is the only one who matters, which was his father's demon, right? Mm -hmm. So Purple Rain is often interpreted as an apology to Wendy and Lisa, an apology to Apollonia, and more generally, really, as a celebration of women. Some even going so far as to say that Purple Rain is a metaphor for the menstrual cycle. (laughs) Seriously, you guys. And that's not like an urban myth or anything. That comes from legitimate (sighs) academic sources. I'm having a little trouble seeing that, but there you you go. Knowing what we know about Prince, I could totally see that that might indeed be the case, just the way his mind... His mind works. Mm-hmm. And you can I wish I would have known that back when I was still um, getting a period because I would have <laughs> just always called it my purple rain. Yeah. <laughs> purple rain is here today. That's right. You I would have just started singing. singing it. Yeah, or just playing it really loud. Rain. Let the whole house know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Your mm-hmm. husband comes across the bed and you're like, purple, purple rain, purple rain. Oh, you just God. hold it. Yeah, you just, yeah, it comes home from work and it's just blaring in the house. Well, um, 
that song also um, affected Apollonia. And you can just tell by her face that she is also yeah. receiving it as an apology. And she mm-hmm. believes that he is indeed probably capable of change and that he's coming clean. Rain, think about it. Rain is cleansing. It's a metaphor for a new start. And one of the most redemptive moments of the movie, it's really one of my favorite moments of the movie, is during the guitar solo. And Prince is just shredding it, right? And he walks over to Wendy and he leans over and he kisses her on the cheek. And the look on her face, it's like, She's going to cry. It's a good moment of acting for her. It's really, I mean, it, it, it makes my heart hurt. Well, it was probably genuine. I, she probably wasn't acting. Mm-hmm. Right. And I feel like his only male role model has been his father, who's always been a dick to women. I mean, that's what he yeah. witnessed. Um, and that's been his only way of kind of walking through this world. The old prince would not have kissed her on the cheek, let alone use no. their music or anything like that. Um, but I feel like he can finally kind of stand up straight and be like, yeah, I can show that kind of emotion. And as you said, it's completely asexual. Um, when previously everything else that he had done was, let's face it, just him breathing mm-hmm. is overtly mm-hmm. sexual, in my yeah. opinion. Um, and then here's this moment. It's gentle and you can tell it's just out of pure love. And respect. He's like paying respect for that song. He's saying, this is good. You guys are good. And Michelle, at one point during our discussion, you made a comment that we kind of glossed over, but I think it needs a lot more attention during this discussion of choosing a different path than the one you were taught. You made a comparison to the John Travolta character in Saturday Night Fever. This is not the first time Saturday Night Fever is coming up. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until after our discussion where I was like, oh my God, it's the same story. It's the same story. Yeah. Yes. Listeners, yeah, you can hear our discussion about Saturday Night Fever. It was episode 52, uh, which is a movie we also picked apart bit by bit and came away with a whole new understanding. But essentially, we have a main character here who has a choice to make. Am I going to do what I've been taught to do my whole life, which is treat women like shit, basically? Or am I going to break with my past and see women as whole human beings deserving of my love and respect? Yeah. And now you can see, now I'm like, is Purple Rain, how deep is your love? Because how deep is your love is the moment where John Travolta is like, I can't do this anymore. I can't. I can't Mm -hmm. be with these numbnuts who are just trashing women all the time. I have to come clean. I have to come clean. Cleanse yourself. But it's also... It's also a good, you know, both movies, um, you know, have such a flawed character that then upon closer or or viewing it, at least through an adult lens, you can maybe start to see their flaws as having maybe almost having a a reason or an explanation. And this happened to me, this exact same thing happened to me with Saturday Night Fever too, where I can start to think on these characters and think, okay, I was, you know, it was a very trigger reaction when I was watching both of these movies. I don't like this character. I don't like whatever. And then it's, you know, kind of starting to think about it some more and start to see the story they were trying to tell that you start to, you kind of start to see that, you know, there was some growth at least. And and it's like, does that mean that you would recommend that your daughter date this person? No, no, it doesn't. But it does mean that you recognize that this person has a path to become a better person. 
And you Mm -hmm. want to allow that to happen. And so that is one reason, too, why a lot of these critics, you know, remember it was Gene Siskel, Saturday Night Fever is Gene Siskel's favorite movie ever. And I was like, what? (gasps) Like, what? And, you know, we just read about that there's people that compare this movie to Citizen Kane. So it's like, how are these, how are these really, you know, scholars, these really, these critics who know movies, how, you know, I'm kind of going, how are they seeing this? And, Mm -hmm. and they're very similar, I think, upon further reflection. So when Purple Rain ends, Prince runs off stage and he has a breakdown. And this kind of signals to us that this is just the beginning of his journey, because that was a very difficult thing for him to do, to to showcase somebody else's music, to show respect to Wendy and Lisa. Change does not happen overnight. It's not like, okay, I've washed my hands clean and now I'm a new person. That was really a difficult thing for him to do. And he's running and he's crying and he's pacing. And then he hears the applause. He hears the cheering of the crowd. People are going crazy for Purple Rain. This this composition that belongs to Wendy and Lisa, but it's performed by him. It's infused with the spirit of the kid. Even the mean owner of the club, who said he was just like his father, has a tear running down his face. And thus begins his resurrection. He sees that if he can let go of his demons, he will be rewarded with a transcendent experience. So he runs back out on stage, and the celebration begins. I Would Die For You is what the kid's father says to his mom after one of his beatings. This was his excuse for beating her. It's the classic trope of domestic abuse. And in the movie, the song, it cuts back and forth between concert footage and scenes of Prince visiting his father in the hospital. He's comforting his mother, cleaning up the destruction he caused at the house. And it's just, it's, it's a cleansing. It's a, it's, 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 it's a metaphor, Mm -hmm. but it's also very literal. It's a very literal cleansing. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The purple rain continues and he's rising from the cleansing. Mm -hmm. I mean, just it. We never would have picked up on that. He's cleaning up the house that he trashed. There's so much to be said about what that means that he's cleaning up the house that he trashed. Listeners, I mean, we're all going to write a sign of growth right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're all going to write. Uh, just FYI, we're writing dissertations on Purple Rain <laughs> after this. <laughs> We've all become. We're getting our doctorate, and we're going to write dissertations on Purple Rain. I would die for you. Here's where the conversation in my attic got really interesting, because this song is so full of meaning, chock full of meaning. It's not just a fun song to dance to. And we were figuring this out as we talked about it. First of all, this song is his first step in forgiving his father for his sins because he has to have some forgiveness for his father or he won't be able to move forward. He says, I'm not a woman. I'm not a man. I am something that you'll never understand. I'll never beat you. I'll never lie. And if you're evil, I'll forgive you by and by. are his promises to his father, to his future partner. And when I was dancing to it, you guys, I never heard, I'll never beat you. Mm -mm. I Mm -mm. heard, I'll never hurt you. So again, we're elevating it all the more. He's being right out there with what this song is. I'll never beat you. I'll never Mm -hmm. lie. And if you're evil, I always heard it as I'll never be you. I'll never be you. I'll never hurt you. Mm -hmm. I'll never be Mm -hmm. you. Yeah. 
I never heard And that. I never mm-hmm. once got, and if you're evil, I'll, I'll forgive you by and by. Never. I wonder what I used to say. It went by too fast. And if you're evil, I'll forgive you by and by. I did a by and by. Bye, bye, Okay, but wait, there's more. And this is where Carolyn just about lost her teeth. Because even more, these words are evoking the words of Jesus Christ. Not even lying. I would die for you. The resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall have eternal life. Church camp. Raise your hand if you went to church camp. And in each verse, he actually sings in the voice of a different part of the Holy Trinity. So the Father, the Father is what I just said above. I'm not a woman. I'm not a man. I am something that you'll never understand. And most importantly, if you're evil, I'll forgive you by and by. And then listen to this. Then you have the Son. I'm not your lover. I'm not your friend. I am something that you'll never comprehend. No need to worry. No need to cry. I'm your Messiah and you're the reason why. Whoa. Oh, wow. This could be it. We could sing this in church. Yes, you could. You could. Okay, <laughs> now churches do. let's get to number three. You've got the Holy Spirit. I'm not a human. I am a dove. I'm your conscious. I am love. All I really need is to know that you believe that you, I would die, die for, for you. And the doves. The doves. The doves come back. The doves come back. And the doves are peace. That's yes. The peace. They're yes. not even crying yes. anymore. And they're not crying anymore. Oh my God. Peace. When doves yeah. cry. When doves cry is when there's no peace. Right. Oh my God, you guys. I'm glad you were recording this. <laughs> and then later that night, after we were done recording... I sent you guys an emergency text because I was still figuring it out. There was still that was more coming to me. And I'm going to read you exactly the words of my text. I said, I just had a purple rain brainstorm. When the dad tried to kill himself, was he literally trying to die for the mom? I would die for you. I'll protect you by killing myself. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. I will die so that you may live. Sound familiar? Okay, I'll stop now. (laughs) And then I added a little cross Mm -hmm. emoji. (laughs) Oh, Reverend Christian. Well, I think there you is a just, lot of I, know. I think there is a lot <laughs> of me. kind of religious, you know, um symbols and symbolism that in this in, in the music and in this movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And by the way, you didn't have a purple rain brainstorm. You had a purple, <laughs> purple rainstorm. rainstorm. Mm-hmm. Oh, you guys. That song in particular was one that that's blew the, my mind the most. That's the really bad day of your oh, period. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> purple rainstorm. <laughs> And then the climax of the movie arrives. Just as the movie is reaching its apex, it was like our conversation in the attic was reaching its apex too. Like we had gone on this journey together and we arrived at this place and it felt so good because the movie culminates in what is the true resurrection point of the movie, Baby I'm a Star. went down in the attic we're reaching the the apex of our transformation and it ends with baby i'm a star because basically if you break this cycle of abuse if you can be a better person if you can let wendy and lisa show their talents and not just focus on yours you can be a star we all can be we stars, can all be stars. <laughs> there's just peace on earth yes 
And it is a celebration. And for me to sit on that couch, like, I mean, obviously I'm like couch dancing, but what I wanted to do was stand up and dance because that's not a song you can sit down for. It is a true celebration. Mm -hmm. It's a great song. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to revisit. I might have to watch the movie. You might have to watch the movie again. Yes. Yes. Certainly. Listen to the soundtrack while I'm reading the lyrics. Yes. I'm going to go back. Mm -hmm. That's powerful. Again, he was just beyond... It's like, this is exactly the the aha moment we had when discussing Saturday Night Fever, I feel mm-hmm. like. Yeah, you're right. And it's funny, when you have three people in a room talking about these things, we, we feed off of each other, we bounce things off of each other, and things become more clear. And then you start to see that what, you know, I made classified as a B-movie as an adult is really quite profound and meaningful. And this is what the director meant. He said, no, this is a story that applies to everybody. Well, everybody needs to listen to this episode of our podcast. So tell all of your friends, (laughs) listeners, because this is profound. And I don't know how many people, when it was out, would have gotten this. You guys, this discussion has changed everything for me. Because I really didn't know what this movie was about. And it's a movie about the cycle of domestic violence. It's a movie about misogyny. It's not featuring misogyny. It's about misogyny. Mm -hmm. And this was a story we didn't hear in 1984, which is maybe why we didn't pick up on those messages. Except for the burning bed and little penny slash Janet Jackson on Good Times, we didn't know anything about domestic violence or how it worked. And that's Mm -hmm. what this movie was about. Mm -hmm. And I think going back to what we were just talking about, about the religious symbolism in it, I do think it's also a movie about a type of a resurrection. And it's a type of, you know, it's a redemption of resurrection for sure. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's what he wanted it to be. And I think the only reason I'm thinking that is just because the lyrics are so pointed now. Now that I know what these lyrics are and I'm not just going, like, you know, like I now having looked at these lyrics and thinking of them in the context of the movie and of the story he was telling, I think that that's what he was trying to show us. Right. I agree. And I think it's that kind of the universal story of one, it's never too late. Like you can be redeemed. You can be the change, all of those things. And without that hope in life, I mean, what do we have? So it's, I I think that is um, why, was it, sorry, was it Gene Siskel who loved it? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, both of them, Siskel and Ebert, Siskel and Ebert. Now, forevermore, I will think of Prince as the dove. Mm-hmm. I never thought of him as the dove. I'll think about what happens when doves cry. I'll think about him as the peacemaker. He's the peacemaker. That's what he wanted. Right. And just think about we coming totally full circle to the beginning of our conversation last week. And you talked about being at um, at his home after he died and seeing all of these people together, all ages, all ethnicities, all of that stuff. And he had that ability to bring people together in a peaceful way or the crowd um, downtown. You guys, I worried that this movie wouldn't hold up, that it would be so of the 80s, that it wouldn't have any meaning to people today. But I think our discussion proves that that is far from true. And I think the San Francisco Chronicle said it best. Many years after its release, the Chronicle said, Purple Rain is a time capsule of style and attitude. It does what musicals are supposed to do. It rides the underlying currents of its moment and renders them glorious. 
Thanks for listening today, for sticking with us through what was at times a really difficult conversation, but I truly believe that we will all be better for it. Yes, thank you so much for listening and for sharing all of your feelings about this iconic Gen X experience, because that's what it was. It was more than a movie. Mm -hmm. It was more than the music. It was an experience. We talked a lot about important songs and scenes, and you'll find some of those in our next weekly reader. So if you are not signed up for this great piece of literature, our weekly email newsletter. <laughs> it is. It is. Absolutely. Yes, it is. It, yeah. it is. Mm-hmm. So you can sign up for the weekly reader on our website. It will also have a link in our show notes. So you can link, click through that and sign up through the show notes or through our link in bio on Instagram. We could not have done this without help from our supporters on Patreon. Our listeners are the diesel engine of the PCPS, helping us pay our bills and devote ourselves full-time to this mission of unearthing and celebrating all the cultural nuggets from our Gen X youth. Without your support, we could not do this work. If you would like to offer your support... Shit, how do they do that? (laughs) Oh, now Kristen. I know! I know! Kristen, you know what they can do? They can go to tell me. They can go to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and put Pop Culture Preservation Society in the search bubble. And this week we are giving a special shout out to Patreon supporters Nina, Gail, Elizabeth, JS, Pam, and Jennifer. Thanks, you guys. In the meantime, let's raise our glasses for a toast, courtesy of the gang Freeze Company. Two good times. Two happy days. To Little House on the Prairie. Let's go Cheers, crazy. You guys. Cheers. Yeah. The information, opinions, and comments expressed on the Pop Culture Preservation Society podcast belong solely to Carolyn, the Crushologist, and Hello Newman, and are in no way representative of our employers or affiliates. And though we truly believe we are always right, there is always a first time. The PCPS is written, produced, and recorded in Minneapolis, Minnesota, home of the fictional WJM Studios and our beloved Mary Richards. Nanu Nanu, keep on trucking, and may the force be with you.